0: This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay are joined by Andy Derer, Neil Schmidt, and Jim Kopany to discuss
1: Britpop.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minnichi, and joining me as always, my co-host for episode 213, season five mr jason ziak jay yeah we're you really here enunci- you really enunciate my name now i do yeah i didn't know i was I like over- it i mr. like it jason ziak uh we're doing our second round table jay a round table discussion for the second month in a row and this one is part of our theme month our first theme month which is Britpop. pop And we are exploring all aspects of Britpop in this podcast. Mm. To do so, you know, it wouldn't be a round table with the two of us. It'd just be a square table with us sitting across from each other. And that would be boring. So we've decided to turn this into more of a Pentagon-shaped table by adding three additional voices to this discussion. Some that people will be familiar with. And then a new voice that we've added, our new gentleman... Joining us for this episode is uh, Jim Kopany from The Chicagoist, and he has a website, tankboyprime.blogspot.com. Jim, thanks for coming on the show and discussing some Britpop with us.
0: Happy to be here. Thanks.
2: Uh, We've also got returning champions uh, from previous episodes, such as Manic Street Preachers and Sugar, among some others. Uh, Mr. Andy Dare of... You all know the Andy Dare Show podcast. Also creator of the new uh, zine, The Honeycomb. Andy, yes. thank you thank you for coming on the show. Quickly, what oh, is The Honeycomb? Explain it's that. It's
3: just a little thing. I got the new book by Sub Pop Records called Sub Pop USA, which collects all the zines that started their label before it was a record label mm-hmm. from 80 to 88. So I'm reading all these zines that Bruce Pavitt typed on a typewriter and stuff, little reviews and stuff, and I'm saying... Where is that in 2015? Everything's so digital and flimsy; it's just here, here today, gone tomorrow. So I thought, why don't I, you know, cut down a few trees and give them to my friends, and uh, yeah, something tangible, something that you can uh, keep in your desk drawer, you know?
2: Awesome, going old school.
3: Yeah, there, it's gonna always be a, a pleasure.
2: Is there going to be a cassette release that goes along with future? <laughs> Episodes. Speaking uh, of editions. that, I
3: got t- yeah, I got a new thing called Tape Tuesday. Where on Instagram, I take a picture, a very already done picture of a cassette tape from my collection, and I'm getting like dozens of likes. I put a picture of myself. No one gives a shit. When I put a picture of a Weezer Blue album cassette from 1995, I get like 48 likes. So there you yeah, go. What do you know,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> Nostalgia. Nostalgia. And finally, Mr. Neil Schmidt, the professor, the educator. The man who uh, shaped the sound of our band for many years. Thanks for joining us once again, Neil. You are just on for the Stone Roses episode, which I think is very apropos when talking about Britpop.
4: I'm sure. <laughs> it's uh, that's. Uh, I was. It's interesting to think about the Britpop I like and the Britpop I don't like. So I'm. I'm curious to see what everyone's opinion is.
2: I am too. I'm, I think I want to start with uh, with regards to our discussion where everybody sort of came into the Britpop fold. Uh, and what I mean is, w- were you on board from the first suede single that got released in whatever, 1991, or were you sort of late to the game and, uh, you know, discovering these things when Oasis was releasing Wonderwall and all the moms across America were figuring out that Britpop was a thing. Where, where did you guys sort of discover the whole Britpop phenomenon? I'm going to start. Uh, where I just finished. Neil, where did it come in for you?
4: So I think a lot of us were working college radio, so there was uh, all sorts of things coming in. um, And uh, I think, you know, looking at some of the timeline stuff we've talked about, I think James was kind of a gateway band for me, Uh, um, the Gold gold Mother record. Mm -hmm. and um, But... uh, the, the, not the first listen, but the second listen of My Bloody Valentine's Love List for me was then sort of an opening to uh, a, a lot of stuff. But, I mean, there's even, you know, like Amitri and U- Ultravox, like if you want to go a little bit farther back in the 80s, like that's still stuff that I liked. But as far as like what we're, qua- you know, calling like 90s Britpop. Um, right. Yeah, there's uh, that whole Manchester scene was was a big part of that too.
2: Yeah, that was all a huge influence on, especially bands like Blur. Um, I I, I remember reading in um, some articles that, you know, uh, Graham Coxon was hugely influenced by what he was hearing from My Bloody Valentine and the guitar stuff that was going on. And that sort of informed a lot of the guitar playing in the early Blur stuff. Um, Andy, what about for you? When was uh, Britpop on your radar?
3: Well, I was about I was twelve in 1995, kind of the ap- apex of Britpop. So I, I was kind of unaware at first, and then I had a tra- uh, you know, friend that traveled a lot. He goes over to England and comes back with a bag. He probably spent 250, 300 bucks on CDs, CD singles, yeah. all that stuff, and it was mostly Blur, Suede, uh, a menswear CD, um, some <laughs> a lot of bands that have now you don't even would never even think about. But, uh, yeah, that kind of turned it on. And then my first show was Blur, February 96 at the Metro in Chicago. And they blew my mind. They played Metro like it was Wembley Stadium. And, uh, yeah, I was forever a fan.
2: So that was your first show overall or just your first, like, Britpop scene of Britpop band?
3: That was actually my first show of all. Oh, wow. And and they were uh, backed up by Pulsars. They're a Chicago-based band with two brothers and, uh became became a huge fan of those guys too. They only released one album. I'm sure you guys know about it, but uh, yeah. So Blur was kind of my gateway drug to the, the Britpop thing, and then I believe I went to a music land in uh, about '95 or '6, and there was an issue about Britpop, and it had a feature on like you know 16 different bands. So that was really that helped me get into it as well. Gotcha. Didn't the
4: guy from the Pulse Arizona? Didn't he do? Doesn't he do a lot of recording now? Yeah, Yeah, he's he's a
3: studio guy, uh, Dave Trumfio. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah.
0: He's got a place out in LA still. A bunch of a couple of my friends actually work for him.
3: Oh, cool! Yeah, and I can I can drop this news. We've been in talks. He's uh, there was a second full length album of the Pulsars that was never released. He's gone back. He's edited them. He's added stuff, I believe. And so they're prepping Pulsars LP two, and it was it was supposed to come out like last summer. This fall and now i think i haven't talked to him in a couple months but hopefully this spring or summer and he's going to do my show and talk about the release
2: so i'm really excited to hear new music from oh, cool. him it's been like you know 15 years so. wow that's almost chinese democracy-esque in terms of it <laughs> pretty uh, much yeah. yeah uh jim what about you where, where were you first introduced to Britpop? pop
0: So I kind of go back to the 80s, Um, one of those guys that used to buy a lot of cassettes and stuff just based on the cover, and if it was British, I was kind of into it. So Mm -hmm. I'd buy stuff by like the early, early Jesus Jones, Darling Buds, um, Stone Roses, obviously, Happy Mondays, those early 12 inches. And then I actually got an early uh, review copy of the first Blur album. And that sort of started to suck me into that. And then, yeah, once... It was also a big D- David Bowie head. So the second that Sway dropped their first single, I was like, oh, thank God. Somebody's recording music that Bowie's not doing
2: right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jay, uh, I'm curious about you because I remember back in the uh, 90s um, hanging out with <clears throat> you and I don't remember Britpop being a big part of your musical <laughs> repertoire. Uh,
1: well, you know, you'd be wrong.
2: Because oh. I, was really, <laughs> I,
1: I was really into the... Uh, at least the second Supergrass record, um, oh, yeah. which is like 97. Yeah. Um, in that, from that point, led me into digging around, and I started getting into Suede a little bit, maybe like 98. I went back and bought the second Suede album. Um, so, like, through from that period forward, once I discovered Supergrass, um, and I remember Kula Shaker was big at the time. And I, they had a couple songs I liked, and, like uh ash um you know that's sort of 96 97 era Mm -hmm. um so yeah there were uh and then we went back and discovered um that first travis record which i do remember the you know the singles from and kind of liking it but when we revisited it what last season um really really that's like a fantastic record so um yeah i mean uh here and there from 96, 97 on, you know, the, I've, I've either gone back and discovered stuff or, you know, when things come out like British Sea Power and bands like that, I've, I've definitely been into it.
2: Gotcha. I, I Personally, I, I was one of the late people. I probably didn't get into Britpop until 95, which is the big year of like Elastica, Oasis, What's the Story, Morning Glory, um, The Blurs, Great Escape. Record um, that was that was sort of the year that I think, in terms of U.S. accepting Britpop as a mainstream, not just a college radio indie sort of sound. That's when the Wonderwall hit. That's when you know Champagne Supernova; those sorts of songs were all over regular radio instead of just college radio. Um, and like Jay, I sort of went backwards on a lot of the bands. Um, as I, I remember, really liking the. 99 uh, suede album head music which now Mm -hmm. when i listen to doesn't sound as good to me whereas i listen to um coming up which came out in 96 that sounds like a lot it it is an an amazing record in terms of hooks just tons Mm -hmm. of hooks all over that record so uh speaking of that you know in terms of going back do you guys have uh favorite records or songs or bands from that era that you still are, are fans of or are there any that have you know that you were really loved from back then but are now like there's some warts on those records um i'll start i'll go backwards jim what what for you what's what's what holds up
0: well i'm one of those uh complete dorks that as soon as blur released that blur box two or three years ago mm-hmm. uh, it was the first one online to buy it immediately so i huh? have to say pretty much the whole blur catalog holds up really well Uh, Then I look back at other bands that I really liked at the time, like Echo Belly, um, whom I had a big hit of, King of the Curb, which I thought was absolutely tops at the time, but now I listen to it and I'm like, this is tinny and terrible and not so great. And um, obviously, the first two Oasis, Oasis albums still hold up, uh, but the second that they discovered that they should be doing coke at a time other than just before they hit the stage, uh, <laughs> I kind of
2: That's a good point. They did. They did do a lot of coke. <laughs> uh, a- Andy, what about you?
3: Well, yeah, definitely the Blur fan got that box as well. I would say Supergrass's first album was kind of a game changer. I mean, they brought a more punky element to the whole British classiness. And uh, Pulp, I mean, a uh, different class. That was an apex of songwriting genius. I mean, can't say anything bad about that. Their new movie, they're, they've, got, they've got a new concert film that they've got out. I believe it's on, uh, you know, on demand. And uh, that's pretty amazing of their last show a couple years ago. Um, Boo Radley's. I was never a fan of Boo Radley's uh, when they were out, and I've gotten back into them, and especially their Giant Steps album is pretty mind-blowing. Then they kind of went weird and pop and uh, in 95 with their... I think they won the Mercury Prize that year. But, oh, with Wake Up? Yeah, with Wake Up. That was so pop, but then that kind of was a game-changer in the way that uh, England was now into the Spice Girls and that type of stuff. That was... So it was kind of like uh, you know, taking brit pop and even upping the pop al- way more and taking out the rock and roll almost. But uh yeah, all in all, I'd probably say Blur's Park Life is my favorite of the of the whole
2: era. Neil, didn't you mention Boo Radley's to me or, or like a couple years ago that we should be reviewing that band? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> are you are you still I don't know a fan? If I, I don't know if
4: I I don't know if I did or not, but uh uh, I, uh, that's a band that, um, they, uh, I can't say I enjoy every song, but like the songs they do are do they do really well. I just have missed seeing them. I've never seen them live. I, I really wanted to know what would happen if I saw them live, if I'd like them more or like them less. What, what
2: sort of stuff, uh, do you still like from that era?
4: Uh, I love that Wake Up record. That's really good.
2: So, um, it's super, it's super poppy. What else besides, is there stuff besides Boo Radley's?
4: Um, yeah, so I um, so I was just kind of making a list here of the stuff that is still like in pretty regular rotation and Stone Roses. Um, uh, I, and I, I, I might be, I don't even know where they're from, but I think Kitchens of Distinction are, would that be in this category? Does anyone know uh, where they're from?
2: I don't know where they're from. That's a band I really like.
4: I think so. I'm going I'm to Google it while we're talking. I, I'm going to have to use the Google um, machine.
2: They're I'm from, from like, London.
4: Yeah, okay. and I like uh, I think uh, some of those Travis records are yeah. really, really good. Misses the bands that I don't really want to listen to anymore. Um, the Wonder Stuff is a band that I really loved, and I have put it on and just have skipped it. Um, oh, and really? then
0: that first album is still so good, though.
4: That eight leg, eight legged groove machine, yeah.
2: after um, that, They went to the hell, but.
4: My bro- someone just sent me a link uh, that someone has compiled all the playlists from all the 120 minutes. Have you seen that Tumblr? That someone yeah, did? yeah.
2: So it's, uh, awesome.
4: that, it's it's a it's a void of time when you're done mm. clicking. <laughs> um, and then just I'll just go real quick. So um, yeah, that Wonder stuff. It just seemed I really loved it at the time, but it just isn't holding up as well as I thought. Um, and you mentioned Sp- Spice Girls. I would t- tell you about t- the Tell Me What You Want song. I think that song still is <laughs> really pretty slick. Um, nice. And then the song uh, I heard this Sunday during the Super Bowl. And I'm like, you know what? There's nothing that doesn't make this. This the song makes everything sound ep- epic as uh, Bittersweet Symphony. It played during the Super Bowl. And I was like, of course they're going to play that. It makes everything mm-hmm. epic.
2: See, now that, that's an interesting band, The Verve. Maybe I should we be our, our sidebar for the moment. Is are the verve in the same sort of Britpop category that like Blur and Oasis are because I always thought of the of the verve as a much like trippier almost in like a spiritualized space that weren't really they were almost on like their own trip in terms of their sounds and they they sort of edged towards that with Urban Hymns in um what year was that released uh 98 I think or uh 97 one of those years but they they seemed like a band that were kind of doing a little bit different than when i think of brit pop i'm thinking of more of like really single oriented bands like blur and oasis and elastica so,
1: so you're yeah, asking they, are they, they pop
2: enough yeah were they were they really a i guess yeah were they really a brit pop band were they pop enough to be a brit pop band so i think you
0: can make argument that um yeah they were kind of shoegazy and epic and weird and choral sounding but then you have somebody like Simon Tong that goes off to play with Blur and Good Band the Queen and Gorillaz. So, mm-hmm. obviously, I, I think they're from the same class. Okay, it's a good question though. I mean, what what does make Britpop? Does Britpop have to be a three-song, punchy single that's got a bit of art and a bit of pop in it, or is it just that class of bands from that period of time that all sort of intersected and had some of the same like social leanings and the whole like
1: we're all in this together feel, which the Verk kinda of did. Yeah, I I think of um, that. They have to have a British element, like a British, you know, pop lifestyle culture, like point of view, and almost sometimes even outwardly, you know, referential of you know British life. That's one of the things that, as I listened to a lot of this stuff, I found popping up quite a bit as themes, and was wondering if that's a defining, you know, piece. Not only are they from you know england but they bring that you know point of view very clearly across in in the songs um, so that was one thing that i was kind of grappling gra- uh, grappling with trying to figure out if, if that's a <laughs> a, def- a definer of of britpop as well
3: and it's such a tragedy that he didn't make any money off his biggest song too. And he was around for ten years before that came out. It's released its huge hit around the world. No money. Poor guy. I'm surprised he was able to survive that tragedy, you know? <laughs> I think he's doing okay. Yeah. Lucky <laughs> man. I guess he did yeah, he had another couple hits on that album. The drugs but- don't
1: work and Lucky Man were pretty
3: I guess they were too pretty too. ubiquitous, but I'd say a fifth of what Butter or Bittersweet Symphony was. I sure. think his first yeah.
2: solo album did okay too. stuff after that, I don't know if anybody else. I don't want to offend anybody, but I think after that, Alone with Everyone album, that his solo output went way downhill. in Terms of uh, songwriting and just the sound of those records are they're just they're just really kind of boring <laughs> records. Yeah,
0: <laughs> he, he and uh, Ian Brown went about the same career path.
2: Yeah. Ian Brown is an interesting guy because I actually discovered him before I discovered the Stone Roses, which is probably, you know, heresy to say that. But <laughs> the Stone Roses obviously were huge in the UK, but they were quite a cult band, you know, for for people who were in the US and you know, I was just getting into college radio when they put out their second record, which, you know, Love Spreads was a minor college radio hit and had some play here, but wasn't anything that like there wasn't any legacy behind it in terms of the way that they was in the U- in the UK. And Ian Brown's, I think it was his first record. Um, it's Unfinished Monkey Business, I think is the name of it. It came out in 98. Um, I remember getting that record and be like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Kind of sounds like Britpop, but not really realizing <laughs> that he had <laughs> nice. sort of like started him and you know a lot of the other artists from the late 80s that we'd mentioned uh, some of those other bands were sort of responsible for the whole sound and, and i was sort of saying oh he's just sort of glomming onto this Britpop sound that's not <laughs> not really that interesting anymore um jay I, well, got a, we're, I got
3: a good i got a good one sorry to interrupt but uh, go ahead. how about P- primal scream are they brit because they played with every style oh. besides brit pop correct uh, they had the um base the stone roses
0: um screamy sure yeah I, I i would say they're brit pop
2: But then they go, they do "Scream of Delica," and then the next album is the they do a Stones record,
3: a Black Crowes record, more like it, or a Black (laughs) Crowes record.
2: They to me are like a shapeshifter; like they change their sound from record to record. That they're almost impossible to pin down to a particular genre of music.
1: And then after that, they're anything but a pop band for a while,
2: right? I mean, well, did the Vanishing Point record, and 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 then then they did Exterminator,
3: and then Country Girl. About eight years later. So, yeah, you never know what they're going to come out with next. And that's what I love I love about the Scream Gang. Yeah.
2: Is anybody going to see them on their tour in the U.S.? I did yeah. not know about it. What's wh- When is it? Uh, they're only, this,
0: they're, this they're only playing a couple markets. Uh, like they're not hitting Chicago. Maybe, maybe Columbus would be lucky.
2: No, Columbus is never lucky. <laughs> we, I have to drive two hours to see Swerve Driver down at Cincinnati. They're not even coming to Columbus. So... <laughs> There's no, uh, we don't get anything. No, no swerve driver, no ride, no Jesus of Mary chain, no primal scream. Uh, you name it, no band is coming here to play. Water so, Wait, is ride touring? Ride is touring. Yeah, they're playing what? Coachella. They're back together. Yeah. Oh,
4: yeah. Man, I have uh, I have watched uh, many uh, full length ride concert on YouTube. I saw them once, but way, I saw them slow dive, opened, and I missed them, and I love that band, and but uh, ride was fantastic.
2: Well, we'll be probably doing an entire Britpop, or sorry, not Britpop, shoegaze uh, roundtable discussion in the future, mm-hmm. so. So
4: there's, are we drawing the line, rides, and not Britpop, their shoe shoegaze?
2: Oh, yeah. There's a line, and they're on the shoegaze <laughs> side of it. Oh, yeah.
4: I agree. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, see that's the that's the that's the difficult thing is that, you know, in the same way that like what's grunge and what's not grunge in the U.S., you sort of have that sort of like, where's the line for Britpop? You know, obviously there are easy ones, Blur, Oasis, Elastica, Pulp, those sorts of bands. Suede, but then you get into like, you know, some of the other bands is are the Charlatans a Britpop band because they preceded Britpop? But then they also put out a n- number of albums during Britpop that were considered Britpop. But they really were before are the Manx Street Preachers a Britpop band? I think Man Street Preachers are, just because their their main
0: material was like the mid nineties, and it's sort of skirted between the art the damaged art pop of the Britpop bands and sort of like the Anger of Grunge. Like they, they figured out how to meld those together.
2: Probably on yeah. the Everything Must Go record, right? Right. Like I think like the Holy Bible's not a Britpop record, no, you know, but every
1: <laughs> everything must go is totally Britpop. I mean, that um, "Design for Life" is that is a Britpop single.
4: This picture of of a, of a modern ride—they're very old. <laughs> oh man! Do you count somebody like Super Furry Animals as Britpop? They came
0: well, kind
2: of near the end, but they kind of fit the mold. Are they? Would they be considered post-Britpop? It's late-era Britpop. Yeah. Because I think there are, are there a number of bands that came. When was the first Super Furries album? Ninety-six.
0: Ninety-six, ninety-seven.
2: Ninety six, ninety seven. So I kind of, I kind of look at them the same way I look at like the second wave of grunge in the U.S. Like ninety two to ninety five is like the the key years of Britpop in my mind. Then you get ninety five or ninety six and ninety seven is like sort of plateau. Like ninety five, you've hit the top. You sort of s- sit there for two years, and then ninety seven is when Be Here Now comes out, which essentially kills <laughs> Britpop. Wait, and I it, could
3: also argue that the end of Britpop was when the biggest Britpop band, Blur, decided that w- they were no longer interested in Britpop with their self-titled album. They were more that's interested in, in Pavement, Guided by Voices, and that stuff. Yeah,
2: Exactly. And it's also the year of OK Computer by Radiohead. So to me, 97 is the year that Britpop officially shut and the it, door on that. But it's also the year, I think, that that's, that's when the second wave hits because... Travis's Good Feeling comes out that year, which we mentioned. The second Supergrass record, which is really the one that put them on the map. I know they had a Caught by the Fuzz was a single off of I Should Coco, but in terms of a number of singles, I think In It for the Money had like four singles off that record. Then you have the Verbs Urban Hymns. Um, you have uh, what else came out that record? That's the year of Black Grape, which was the Reformed Happy Mondays. You're talking about '97. 97.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest. That's when Oasis is at their biggest, right?
2: Well, that's it, it is, and it isn't because they sold a he, shitload of records, but they also immediately dropped off because everybody went, Oh, this record is really bad. Like, there was, it, it, there's an interesting, if you go back and read some of the reviews, they are like overly praising the record. And the theory is that when they put out What's the Story, Morning Glory, some of those same outlets were kind of like, eh, it's not that good. Like Enemy, <clears throat> Melody Maker, Select, all the British magazines didn't necessarily jump on the Oasis bandwagon, but then the public did, and they sold more records than any band right. in the history of the UK. So it was the thought was that a lot of those magazines were then sort of making up for the fact that they missed the mark on what's the story, but the public didn't necessarily, like they sold a ton of records the first week, and then it like dropped off. Okay. People were like this record is terrible. Sort so that's like, the
1: one where they went into the, like trying to make Sergeant Pepper's, right? They got more
2: complex and breathing. yeah, Sergeant Pepper's with giant mounds of cocaine is what right. what that record is.
1: They, they left the formula of the first two records, which were you know pretty straight up rock rock format, yep. with pop hooks. Yeah,
2: but they no lost frills, their way. No
1: frills, no frills. No extra production. Nothing epic.
2: There's a well, song on there that has 30 guitar tracks, and I'm not <laughs> joking. That, that, and Johnny
3: Depp playing guitar on one. Depp, yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I'm, I'm referencing the, the
0: Bible, which is Britpop, exclamation mark, Shania and the Spectacular Demise of English. Rock, I just read that book. By John Harris, which is an excellent book. Yep. According, to, according to Mr. Harris, the official years of Britpop are 90 to 97. Like anything before that is considered more like baggy Mancunian that fed into Britpop. Okay. And after that is definitely the second wave, sort of like building off of it. Yeah.
2: Okay, we can back it up to, uh, to 90 I mean, then.
1: That, that book is Mojo approved, so it has to be right.
2: It has to be right, it
1: does. <laughs> but you can't discount the post-Brit-Pop stuff either, because that had no. like, I mean, that eventually spawns Coldplay, and there was a bunch of stuff, like Star Sailor and Keane
2: Or Muse, Doves. the worst. Ugh. Stereophonics. What?
0: Isn't isn't post the same as many other genres? I mean, think about um, those of us that are in college radio and probably the early '90s. Everything that we dug in the '80s led us back to the stuff that fed into it in the '70s. So you can't discount the later the later waves. Oh no, yeah. I'm not
2: discounting it, but there was definitely some. I, I think you know there was some of it was a reaction to what was going on. Like Travis was deeply indebted to early Oasis on that first record. Oh, but
0: know. I so so maybe the second wave is more like a more um, able commercial distillation of the yes. sound influence
2: yeah yes. in yeah. the same way that like Bush and Candlebox are the distillation of Nirvana and Pearl Jam um, some of it and then you also get a lot of really interesting things out of that second wave of grunge um, it, it kind
0: of makes me that you would compare Travis to Candlebox I, I, I know that I, I, I
2: realized that when I said that Jim, do you remember? Punch the your, go ahead and just punch
4: yourself, Tim. Just I, 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 I. For us.
2: Do you remember in the book the phrase knoll rock? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, do you want to explain to everybody what that means? I'd it's probably self explanatory, but. I
0: mean, it, it's the big heavy handed. This is. I'm wearing my influence on my sleeve. I'm going to play three to four chords, and it's going to go on for six minutes, but it's going to be fucking epic.
2: Yeah. So, that's the knoll rock, sort of very English and bass, and has a huge hook. Um, well, you know, it's it's actually, it's very rooted in,
0: like, the pub sing-a-lot. Yeah. that's the one thing we don't really have in America is the, is the notion of group singing. And I think that yeah. that is something that kind of drove Britpop. Pop. A lot of those choruses are tailor-made to be sung at midnight in the middle of a bar yeah. while clanging glasses with your best pals.
1: Yeah. That's sure. why when we talked about the Manics, just, I remember their live performance of them doing Design for Life, and it sort of hit me why that song was so popular there, because the entire audience was singing it, and it just right away, you could see, oh, this is a pub chorus. Like, this is something designed for a room full of people to sing together. Like, oh, I get it now. I get why this song was such a huge hit there.
2: Yeah, how, how about Equiesque by Oasis, too? It, that's yeah. a perfect example, too. I was just going to mention that. It has a gigantic chorus in that song, and it's sort of in the same way that um, uh, what's the Blur song? There's a, there's a Blur song that has sort of that, like, uh that's some sort of sentiment like we're all into this together and the universal know, bank holiday
3: yeah. or universal okay the yeah, universal so.
2: not the same tempo necessarily but it has just these massive chorus that you can just everybody can sing along to and they and were at
3: such at their peak that that wasn't even on an album
2: right that no i think that was a... on that was on the great escape wasn't it no yeah, I'm, well,
3: saying, uh, I'm saying i'm saying acquiesce oh acquiesce yeah. yeah
2: that's right it was a b-side <laughs> that was a b-side that's
3: a throwaway for Oasis. At that point, and that's but now they would love to have that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, now I think the other flip side of the of the quote unquote "Noel Rock" was Wonderwall, because I think that sort of guy with an acoustic guitar singing, you know, heartfelt lyrics, turned into a lot of later bands like Coldplay, like the second Travis record, which became Snow I, Patrol. I, Snow Patrol. Oh it seemed like there was in the, in the early two thousands Brit pop involved into singer songwriter guy. Um, mm. and away David from, gray. Yeah. yeah, David gray. Oh um, goodness. <laughs> it got really safe and I'm cur- I don't, I, I, I guess because girls got into it, I don't want to be sexist, but James like, blunt. That's yeah. where, <laughs> like, if you have a big ballad, then, you know, it's the same thing with like eighties metal. Like, Dudes will go to a show and rock out. But if you have a power ballad, then you've got then the girls are going to show up and that's going to expand your audience.
0: So does any of it have to do with the British press? Because I'm thinking about that period of time that you're talking about and the fact that Q magazine was like in its in its ascension, but it was constantly looking for the next big hero to to hype to the crowd.
3: Right. They still are, actually, if you read it nowadays, too. Jake right. bug yeah, and all that and- stuff. Yeah. It's like It was like Blur was turning their back and they still had
0: cover stories, but at the same time they're like, and Texas is the next big
3: <laughs> yeah. band. And you're like, Royal blood nowadays. They're like, it's the biggest selling record of the, of all time. It seems like that hit, hits almost every Christmas at, around Q. That it's the biggest selling record of all time. It's setting records, no matter who it is, really. I so, think the,
2: the magazines absolutely did because menswear is a perfect example of a band that, I don't know if you guys listen to any menswear.
0: Unfortunately, at the time,
2: yes. (laughs) So they were a band that they they basically got all this hype before they really even had a song. Like, they were basically guys who looked good and who hung out in the same places that guys from established bands hung out and just talked a lot of shit that they were, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. forming a band. And then they had, like, one song... And then they played like for 15 minutes with like three songs and like built this whole mystique about them. And the press went nuts for them because they were all it was all about hype, all about any within a span of like a year. They went from being this nobody band to being this gigantic cover of every magazine. Then the album comes out and people go, eh, and it's (laughs) over. It's an insane story. If you ever get a chance to just check out their Wikipedia page, and it kind of goes through all this crazy details of money that was thrown at them, and the press access, and people they're dating, and stuff like that. And it's just like, and it was all it was it was very Sex Pistols esque in terms of the hype, and in terms of the um, just the whirlwind that was going on. That record came out the same year as. The 95 so that's all the big albums that came out that that year um it'd be a good tangent though like the one hit wonders
3: of brit pop because everybody's heard about oasis and blur a million oh, times yeah. like how about the blue tones
2: or cast or yeah there's a ton of stuff. one hit wonders anybody got any particular favorites skunk and nancy
1: oh is that pop <laughs>
3: That was considered Britpop. It was, do you, you know what I'm talking about? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I think that heavy. was considered Britpop, but it was it had metal guitars or something. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: I, I've mentioned the Marion in the past. We did a, we did an episode on the band Marion. Uh, their first record came out in '96, and uh, very like angular guitar, but in in the same mold as uh, some of the earlier or not earlier, but I would say like some of the guitar work reminded me of of graham Coxon in terms of being kind of edgy but uh marion was and they had you know nothing in the united states but you know one or two singles in the uk that did well
1: cool Shake, shaker for sure right there was a yeah. lot of buzz about that band and they just went nowhere
3: But the long pigs
2: yeah that the was review. a band we just we, <laughs> just we just we just reviewed them yeah the long pigs uh for those who are not familiar uh richard hawley who is a pretty good guitar player and balladeer i guess i'd call him he, he writes a lot of slower stuff and he sings like a baritone um he's had a pretty successful solo career in the uk but they had one song on and on that was a single that was um god when was that 90 98 97 that record came out.
3: We I just thought of a that. good
2: one. How about Manson with a U? Hey, just so happens that's our next review is Manson. <laughs> I hope good. it's the I hope
3: it's Attack of the Gray Lantern. Is it right? is indeed, sir. Nice. Even though that, Six was okay, but Six was there. Be here now. they just blown out of proportion, right? Uh, att- I would consider or, so Attack no, of the Gray Lantern was is probably one after. Yeah, what was the one after the first one? It was. Is it was it called
2: Six? Or? Yeah, Six. Okay, gotcha.
3: So popping around these one-hit-and-wonders
0: and kind of going back to your menswear uh, remembrance mm-hmm. sort of makes the case about sort of the media maybe helping kill off Britpop, because how is menswear any different than somebody like Austin Mahoney or uh, Megan Trainer who can come out and like do a 15-minute set, most of which has been hyped ahead of time, and it has a very short shelf life, and that kind of leads up to the whole Oasis versus Blur face-off for that um, the singles. Right, which right. was a media-created event, and I, I kind of think that that's the moment that Britpop died, was that the fallout from that is when everything sort of started to fall apart, the factions started to go in their different directions, and then we started to hit our second wave.
2: Yeah, because it's when the friendly rivalry ended, and then the actual rivalry started, and they actually were dicks to each other Right, after and that.
0: Back, all parties involved are like, well, that was dumb.
2: Right. And if you guys don't know, back in... Um, 95 when Blur was set to release Country House as a single in the end of August and then Oasis was set to release Roll With It the week after and Oasis moved it up a week and they both had albums coming out usually they would give three weeks prior to the album to release the first single and Oasis were doing it six weeks ahead of time so Blur got pissed off and Oasis got pissed off and their management were like sniping each other in the press and somebody Told somebody to go die of AIDS and that sort of thing, as British people always in bands seem to do. Because <laughs> I think did okay. Nicky Wire say that? Nicky Wire said that about Michael uh, Stipe. Yeah, they always are wishing yeah. people of dying of AIDS. I don't understand. That's, that's pretty harsh. They're anyway, to go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> for a polite
0: society, the British are not known for their tact.
2: No. So, Country House beats in the single war of the end of August, which was also it's August. It's a slow news month. There's not a lot going on. There's no war going on at this point. There's no, you know, it's just sort of a hot, boring summer. And the British press creates this battle for Britpop. And Oasis and Blur sort of fall into it. Country House beats roll with it. But then when the albums come out, What's, what's the Story different? Morning Glory destroys Great Escape. And that sort of started the... Not the dissension of Blur, but they kind of like had to reassess what they were doing as a band, which is where the self-titled album comes out with a much different sound. You know, Bl- Oasis obviously took that to heart and decided to go buy all the cocaine in the world and start working on Be Here Now. And Johnny Depp. With Johnny Depp.
4: A lot of cocaine in this episode.
2: There is a lot of cocaine in this episode. Mostly thanks to Oasis. There's a, I there was looking
4: up and there, there was a band called The Poo Sticks that had a song I liked. That was a one-hit <laughs> wonder for me.
3: I don't think they're I think they're American. No or are they? They're they're they studio
0: they're actually a studio construction. They had a couple of albums way before Britpop, but it was um they sort of would take American bubblegum pop and sort of funnel through classic rock idioms including Neil Youngish sort of stuff and James Taylor stuff,
1: which made for great albums, but I don't know if it really counts as Britpop what was the name of the band the who the sticks okay i'm not googling that
3: they're like P-O- the ass ponies ken no.
1: it says they were from wales
4: okay
3: they are from the wales. world okay. is turning
4: on the the world the world is turning on as a pretty catchy little ditty but like as a whole they just weren't that great
0: i still think their first album was great um what was it? great white wonder
2: oh.
0: at least that's the first album
2: i heard i think they had others after that
3: it has got the one that sounds just like Powder Powderfinger yes. by Neil Young, right? Yeah.
2: Let me ask you guys about Pulp because Pulp are sort of the outlier in the Britpop because they had been around technically since the late '70s, early '80s as a. Now, I mean, they were sort of a band, but they had evolved from sort of an art project into a, an actual band. And do you think that? And I'm thinking of the the, the two primary albums for me are Different Class, and This Is Hardcore. Do those two st- still hold up for you? Because I went back and listened to them, and while I liked certain songs, I feel like Jarvis Cocker, as a vocalist, is he sounds dated to me. Like I I hear that, and I think this is very '90s sounding. Whereas I think some of the Blur stuff, especially with the later stuff, like the Blur album and, and the Thirteen album, still sounds very modern and sort of timeless. That Jarvis Cocker stuff, I, it's. On the edge of sounding almost like kitsch, in the way in some of the sounds and some of the stuff that the band's doing with keyboards and whatnot. Um, what's your guys' opinion on Pulp? Anybody? Well, I think the,
1: the genre collectively, I was really surprised. You know, doing a sampling of it, I found some you know generic playlists and just spun them up and just just wanted to react on that level. Like, does this hold up? And I was really surprised. The vast majority of it does hold up very well. Just because i think the the format is usually so classic and simple for mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff um i think that to just you know i guess segue into pulp is that it's a little less classic format right his singing style is very particular the, the at least this is hardcore the production is a little bit more elaborate the songs are more theatrical mm-hmm. if, you know and dramatic so yeah, I could kind of see that. Um, I still like those records, but I, I, I don't. I certainly don't have the same reaction to them now as I did when I heard them then. You know, I'm sort of like, oh, this is okay. Whereas, at the time, I thought they were amazing.
0: I, th- I think the thing is, Jarvis just had a viewpoint that sort of mixed the common man with the bourgeois, and that's what made them exceptional, as well as having a, a crack backing band. Because you're right, mm-hmm. the first, the first, what three or four albums. Which I think Fire Records actually re-released just before a different different class came out, and I remember listening to those and then listening to a Different Class and not thinking it's the same band at all. Right. Also, Jarvis has got this. I don't know. Have you? I don't know if you guys have ever seen him live. I saw him play Pitchfork solo a couple of years ago. I, I've never seen him front Pulp, which I would think I would love to do. But there's a weird sexuality and a connection to the audience that he's got, which I think is probably why. He's super huge in Britain because people have experienced it, whereas in America we can be more distanced and be like, "Well, his lyrics are—you know—he's telling a story. He's almost, you know, Dave Davies-ish, and because <laughs> he does go for that sort of kinks thing, which I know Damon
3: from Blur also does, but it's not—he's—he's he's got a different take. He's a right. little—he's definitely a consummate showman, and uh, he made headlines in the summer of '95, I think. <laughs> at the at the Brit Awards, right, uh, st- like storming the stage when Michael Jackson was performing. Yeah,
2: yeah he got arrested for that, didn't he? That,
3: that's pretty punk, right? Maybe that's the difference. Jarvis is arching, kind of like a fanny
0: wiggler.
2: That yeah,
3: held <laughs> well up. Yeah, and how about his solo stuff? It's it, I think it's definitely a different style, and he even worked with Steve Albini for his latest one. But it's it's been like four or five years since that came out, so I'm not sure what if he's got new
2: stuff on the way or what, but. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't heard anything from Pulp or Jarvis in a while, so be interested. Wasn't he DJing or something for a while too? Who 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 isn't? That's true. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) Which by the way, I'll be DJing this weekend. I was just uh, gonna uh,
1: say, can I plug my gig? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um I'm DJing while we're doing this, actually.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Jim brought up a good point though with regards to It seemed like there was a much more defined sort of class war going on with regards to Britpop. Uh, I remember reading in the book that that Jim mentioned that um, Oasis and Blur definitely had like a class warfare aspect to their rivalry, where Oasis being more the working class, sort of I think they call them laddish sort of guys, um, and a Blur sort of tried to get into that with park life and being guys that hung out at dog racing parks and you know hung out at the pub and so sort of, they sort of sh- played that part but then shed it as they went on um and oasis took shots at them for being like university kids and you know arty and whatnot and i was trying to think of a, a sort of comparison to american music i don't really have i don't feel like that Class comes into it. Maybe you guys can disagree right. or, or agree. But I don't feel like class comes into American music in the same way that the British the music, especially with Britpop, did. Am I off with that, or do you guys agree? No, Can't no that's... listen
4: new enough country. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's true. true. That's a good point. Maybe
2: it's between genres more so than within rock and roll itself.
1: But that—that's what I'm saying about like you know the subject matter and the themes are unique to you know britain so what you're talking about there that's a class structure that isn't it doesn't map exactly to the u.s you know it's unique to that culture so you know to me that's one of the things that defines the genre right is that talking about those types of subjects that are just unique to them
0: but of course one of the funny things is park life is constantly misunderstood as a pro pro britannia album when it's actually a reaction against america and mm-hmm. a frustration with the fact that Britain is becoming as homogenized as America is, at least in Blur's eyes from their touring America,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: is I've always thought is interesting because yeah, it's always been Oasis is the working class and Blur is the upper class, but the honest fact is Blur was always like, "We're <laughs> you guys are all just getting sucked into the same cesspool." And there's That's also something- the
2: asp- a- the political aspect that was going on with Blur and Oasis with with Blair and the and the rise of New Labour, which. Uh, Jane and I tried to address some political aspects when we were doing the Morrissey record last week, and we completely bungled it. And luckily, we got called out on it uh, by one of the, our UK listeners because there were some aspects of nationalism and, involved with um, Britpop, and I think we probably we might have taken them a little more seriously than they might have needed to be. With oh, you know Liam Gallagher showing up with the Union Jack Les Paul and that sort of thing. And again, I mean, that was uh, that was something that I don't see a lot of American bands in terms of rock and roll doing. It's more like country music that sort of waves the flag in the same way.
0: Well, maybe it's like um, Eddie Vedder backing Ralph Nader, or the amount of people that came to Obama's support in '08. It, it's that sort of thing. It's it's not. It didn't sway the election, mm-hmm. but it definitely made a, a pop cultural impact, which I think is that's the whole thing. Like. Gallagher went to Downing Street to do a fundraiser. Um, Albarn refused to, but still supported Blair. And a lot of people felt like they were betrayed by labor after he got into office. So I think well, that's cre- that sort of thing. And well, Creation idea-
2: Records was hugely involved in in Blair. I mean, Alan McGee was like working for the Blair campaign at one point, essentially. And Blair was trying... They were inquiring about getting their hands on the Creation mailing list.
1: But the idea of... Uh, I don't know if nationalism is the right term or not, but just that you know within pop music there's you know uh, albums or bands writing songs about are we too are we british enough or are we too or, you know are we being influenced too much by america that's all that's subject matter that i don't think you would ever hear here right i mean even in country music i don't nobody comes out and says like <laughs> you know well, what i mean like it, that's dixie, just it yeah,
3: some, the dixie so chicks cool.
2: <laughs> yeah they're the well, only probably the only one what do you mean? They came not out with the
0: anti-Bush song. and. Well, I don't
1: mean like anti-politics. I mean like anti-another country. You know what I mean? Like if, if Parklife is, is a reaction yeah, we'll put a boot to in your ass. <laughs> American culture, I'm trying to think of an American artist who would write a record about French culture. Or, you know what I mean? Like another country being too oppressive or being too much of an influence on us. That's just such a, a foreign concept for me in, in terms of, you know
2: what we hear out of pop music here. I got a feeling I have just come up with a concept for a new record. Jay, based on that. <laughs> a, a, it's going to be a disc record on different countries.
1: Now, obviously, because we're such a, you know, I don't know, such a, I guess, larger country that it probably doesn't work the other way. That, you know, we're sort of the big gorilla that's standing over other people and imposing yeah. ourselves. So that's probably why. But it's just, again, it's just a very unique point of view to hear. Uh, in terms of music.
2: That's a good point. If you're sort of perceived as being on top, you don't really feel the need to address other people or other countries. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: You just get used to being reflected by other people.
2: Yeah. Right. Let me ask you guys about, we're we're within our our allotted time frame here, so I'm going to ask one more question. The legacy of of Britpop. We mentioned some of the bands that came afterwards and, and where these sounds have gone. Muse started out as sort of a radiohead, Britpop imitator, and have gone off on a crazy tangent of their own. Um you have bands like the Kaiser Chiefs who have sort of emulated some britpop aspects of Blur and Oasis. Um you have, you know, British Sea Power and Star Sailor. But then you have bands like Stereophonics who started out as a very Britpop sounding band and then all of a sudden the black crows drummer started playing with them and they turned into the black crows um, <laughs> do you think Look that on. britpop Look has on. had staying power or the libertines bars-
3: are my favorite of the newest wave and obviously they imploded so right but they were so promising that first album up the bracket and that was all the way what 02 or 03 so that was way out of the range yeah. yeah
4: in my mind it's it's a it's a it's a product of its time Yeah. Um, I, I think there's definitely contemporary updates to it, but I mean, you know, the, the I stayed away from the less. I didn't listen to the more theatrical Brit pop stuff. So some of the suede and and that kind of stuff was a little like I liked my pop that got a little show toony for me. But it, it definitely is is a is a function of its time period. I don't think you know the the bands that you mentioned that are all updated seem all a little more vanilla to me. Like they're all kind of unique, but there there's they and they can be lumped again. And I think in 10 years, you know, they'll be talking about this kind of time maybe on this show. Um, But the, the certain, like there's an aesthetic that goes with it. There's like a, there's like a guitar sound that goes with it. There's a production style on the record that goes with it. There's a certain swagger. Like that's all encompassed in that, in that what you said that 90 to 97, um, it's a real it's a real positive time, you know. So there you mentioned some really kind of negative rigors. There's definitely some it's you know kind of pre like all that stuff was like really happy, you know, like for the most part. Yeah, it was the drugs or whatever, but you know, like it's a all that pre 9/11 stuff is pretty, you know, there's there's a there's a certain glow around all that kind of stuff.
2: That's ecstasy, by the way. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, so, that's-
4: well, and that, sure. <laughs> so, you you can't, have, can, I've got glow sticks on both hands right now. So, <laughs> I kind of have a fear that there's a
0: Britpop resurgence around the corner because if you notice nowadays, uh, the last year or two, we've had a lot of bands that sound very mid-90s indie like Matador Records, Chavez, Pavementy. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's a lot of that going on. And I'm starting to hear strains of like Poppy stuff come through that. It's almost like... I don't know, the next generation is discovering their older brother or older sister's record albums and being like, fuck, this is great. Oh, this is even better. I can sing along to this. This is, it, it, I just feel like that's coming up. So in that respect, I think Britpop kind of has a legacy that might not be as dated as you think. I mean, good good pop songs are good pop songs. And I think that there's just that idea that there is, you're right, that swagger, that kind of sexiness to it. And that's sort of, um, there's that certain level of archness. But I think that, that that's coming back.
1: Well, if if it was anything, I'm going to assume that it was very similar to how it was here. So for a span of, what, four, three to five years, pop music kind of didn't exist in the way that it, it had in the 80s. So, like, all the boy bands disappeared in the sort of early to mid-90s. And it wasn't until, like, Backstreet Boys here and then in the UK, it was Spice Girls. Yeah. So I'm wondering if, like, when we saw, like, grunge and post-grunge and sort of that era of rock kind of take over pop music for a span there, if in, you know, England, it was the same story with Britpop. And then once Spice Girls happened and then One Dimension now and, like, all the pop idol stuff and the, you know, that whole obviously is huge over there. So, like, basically Britpop became pop again. And here, you know rock kind of disappeared completely and we Mm -hmm. have you know hip-hop and rock or hip-hop and pop music and country kind of took its place because when i look at the charts now you know in the uk it's all just you know american pop music or pop music like there's very little i don't recognize any um english rock bands in the top you know 20 or so records over there right now so did it get killed by pop music basically in terms of, you know, what, uh, it being really popular and prevalent.
3: It would also be interesting to argue that Brit pop was England's, uh, version of grunge, you mm-hmm. know, same era. Mm-hmm. There was a style of clothing there. It took over the entire world, you know, a lot of things you could come up with an argument about that. I think, Yeah, yep. I, um, absolutely. I
0: was, there was absolutely no style connected to grunge, uh,
3: <laughs> it was in the sears catalog at one point be yeah. grunge oh, <laughs> doc martens and flannel
2: yeah. i know you got your flannels in your closets folks let's not let's not oh, lie. i still love it yeah what
0: are you talking about it's still tied around my waist
2: <laughs> <laughs> i think we have done a good job of from an american point of view dissecting brit pop i tried to get john harris uh, the author of Britpop, to join us but uh <laughs> he rebuked my my advances. So we did not get that. But I think from an American point of view, we I think we all sort of lent our experiences in a, um, hopefully a, a manner which people listening to this second round table for uh, the podcast will chime in with the comments on where they first discovered Britpop and some of their favorite records as well. I'm interested to hear. Um, so this is we are just about to hit the hour mark so this is like perfect timing to wrap what, up what reviews do we have coming up so we've got next episode we're going to be doing a review of manson attack of the gray lantern so we started the Britpop month with morrissey who was sort of the precursor with the smiths to britpop sort of an influence on britpop with you know we mentioned bowie and and some other artists the jam paul weller would be another one mm-hmm. along with the kinks and the beatles and the stones obviously we're closing the Britpop month with a review of Manson attack of the great lantern, which I would say is like a post Brit pop album. Um, a little bit weirder than mainstream Brit pop than Oasis and blur. And, um, unfortunately our interview for this month, since we're doing an interview each month has nothing to do with Brit pop. <laughs> so, uh, I, I reached out to several people and, um, no Surprisingly, Gallagher uh, Noel Gallagher's busy, so he did not return my calls. But the reason why I wanted to do it with this month is because it's it's sandwiched in between Gaz Coombs from Supergrass just put out a solo record, and then next month Noel Gallagher from Oasis is putting out his second solo record. So I thought this would be a good month to um, to tackle this. And I believe it's also the twentieth anniversary of Richie James from the Street Preacher's disappearance. So, weird, sort of not really positive anniversary for that. We're um, uh,
0: out, out a pint and a um,
2: half cup of tea. Yeah, <laughs> for Richie. want to thank everyone. I want to thank Andy Dare of the Andy Dare podcast for coming on. Everybody should go to com. Follow him on Twitter at Andy Dare, at Andy Dare Show, and the Dare Network. Uh, thanks, Andy yeah
3: thanks That's for good. having me always always have a blast i feel like this is like the alternative rock version of the mclaughlin group or the <laughs> view and I, I like it a lot so splitting
4: hairs <laughs> here is
2: <laughs> so thank you so much for having me always have a good time awesome and also from chicago from our chicago affiliate jim thanks for stopping by and we can check you out on twitter at tank boy your uh Secret name on Twitter. Um, and then your website, TankboyPrime at blogspot.blogspot.com. And on Chicago's.com. And Chicago's.com. Thank you. I was drawing a blank there for a second. This is where Neil. you start playing
4: Elastica's Connection for me. Go ahead. Go ahead. There you yes. go.
2: <laughs> I think it's Three Girl Rumba by Wire, by the way. Yeah. Uh,
0: and when you play that song, Wire gets 75% of it, just like uh, Jagger gets 75% of Verb.
2: There you go. Did they really? Yeah. I think they got whole- all of the Verb song, actually.
4: Oh. No no, I know about the verse song, but the wire making money off elastica? Oh, yeah.
2: yeah, they oh, sell. Sound... Yeah. yeah.
4: Oh, I didn't know that. We're learning things.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> and then Neil Schmidt, we can find mm. you at neilschmidt.com. Mm, that's the a... Yeah, and... I
4: mean I sometimes maintain that.
2: <laughs> and spoiler spoiler alert, we'll be doing a special episode with Neil uh this later this March. Uh details forthcoming, but we're going to be doing a, a, a project, a um, an interesting project with Neil on a very special episode. It's going to involve Tom Hanks and a jar of Bing cherries.
1: <laughs> Maricino <laughs> cherries.
2: Maricino cherries. Uh, if anybody catches that Family Ties reference, I will be ecstatic. So that's it. Everybody, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, of course, hit our iTunes page to leave some positive feedback. And if you want to request a review digmeoutpodcast.com thanks Andy thanks Jim thanks Neil and of course thanks Jay and thank you all for listening we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out
4: join the conversation
0: about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.